Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 50, FUBAR. Last time, David Sterling and the entire SAS team had been called back to Cairo to participate in a massive operation that had its beginnings, supposedly, in one of David's ideas. But they didn't tell him which one until he was back within the safe walls of headquarters. Then there was no end to the, in David's estimation, bragging of how Rommel was going to be left struggling for supplies as the British 8th Army rolled over the Desert Fox. Before the details of this war-ending sabotage could be whispered to Sterling, doubt dominated his mind. How could these people, who had no knowledge of night raids or desert survival, possibly plan the end to the Axis forces in North Africa? And when they did tell him of what was underway, his doubt grew out of all proportion, only because their plans were out of all proportion and reality. The idea was to make Benghazi, in its entirety, useless in its role of feeding the Axis war machine. Of the three times that David tried to sabotage the works at Benghazi, and failed each time, for various reasons, he had previously made it known to headquarters that if he had been successful, and if naval units could have joined him to block the harbor, this vital port of Rommel's would have been removed, forcing the Germans to get their supplies onto land much further to the west, and would thus take more time to get them to the front. And that was what HQ now wanted to try again. But there was more. Yet first, David was brought up on the latest analysis of the war in North Africa. It was expected that Rommel would try to make another push at the El Alamein line before the end of the month. It was mid-August 1942. Yet Alexandria felt certain that the line, just 40 miles away from the city, would hold. And when the 8th Army was ready i.e. in late October, they would move forward and, with their numerical superiority, push the invaders all the way back to Tripoli. So, September could be spent using the Empire's irregular forces, as they were called, to harass the enemy's supplies. David would take a large force, just over 200 men, and hit everything worth anything at Benghazi. Meanwhile, Colonel Hazelton would take a slightly smaller force and capture Tobruk, which was also being used by Rommel to offload supplies. It would be more correct to say that Hazelton would launch an attack that would lead to the capture of the Italian port city. But just to keep the Axis forces off balance, other, though smaller raids, would be affected as well. A raid to recapture Jalo on the western edge of the Great Sand Sea. So, if David's team had any troubles returning from western Sinaica, they could stop there. And a truly diversionary raid on a small scale at Barsay Airfield. The more David listened, the deeper the frown became on his otherwise calm, quiet face. Colonel Hassadin might have been an Arab specialist, but that did not mean he knew the desert, or night raiding, or had led men into battle, which he hadn't. And, as his Tobruk raid incorporated British soldiers acting as POWs, British commandos coming in by the sea, and a crucially timed naval bombardment, David could just see, with his mind's eye, how something, really just one thing, 
could go wrong, which would cock up the entire operation. When David had been asked his opinion, he answered with a calm he did not feel inside. Where to start? A multi-layered operation with hundreds of men and almost 100 vehicles was somehow going to be kept quiet. There went Sterling's number one advantage, surprise. Next, these newcomers would not have time to train properly in either desert travel or night raiding. There went experience, which would get them to their target and home in one piece. And lastly, the SAS had always made the most of opportunities that had come open. Tying these green troops to a timetable was crazy. David couldn't remember the number of times he had to improvise. This was an ego. Men's lives were at stake. This time, hundreds of men. The planners could see that the leader of the SAS did not share their enthusiasm or belief in this war-ending assault, but they had all the carrots and sticks they needed to work on Sterling. How would he like his command expanded? How would he like it made independent and permanent? How would he like a promotion? These arguments took David halfway to saying yes, or rather, hell no, and then his optimistic attitude took him the rest of the way. But there were other larger events in the world, some of them as close as North Africa, that would affect Sterling and his men. In mid-August, as the planners and ranking officers of Alexandria worked on David, bringing him round, there were changes being made at the very top, per the input of the Prime Minister. Auchinleck was out, General Alexander was in, and now the C&C, Middle East. As for who would lead the British Eighth Army, Ritchie had had his chance. Now it would be up to General Montgomery. And though he and David wore the same uniform, they were not on the same side. As Churchill was coming through Egypt, having left Russia, Sir Miles Lampson, the British ambassador to Egypt, made sure Sterling met with Churchill. The Prime Minister knew of the SAS, of course, through his son Randolph, who did a short stint until a back injury. The second time Sterling met the Prime Minister the next night, David decided to throw all caution to the wind and tell the elderly statesman of his worries about the current and future status of the SAS. And this brassy move would pay dividends, as Churchill would express his desire to see better things for the SAS to the new C&C, Alexander. But that was for the future. Sterling was dealing with the present, in its unpleasant form. The British may have felt confident that Rommel could not get past their line at Alamein, but Rommel was making damn sure the SAS wouldn't be crossing his line either. What's more, he had also stationed troops and regular air patrols in and over the Katara Depression, so that was out of bounds for the Raiders as well. But taking the defense of his assets even further, the relatively small gap in between the southwest corner of the Depression and the most eastern part of the Great Sand Sea near Siwa was also blocked off by German troops, land and air. Which meant that if this massive raid against Benghazi, Jalo, Tobruk, and Barse was to take place, the augmented SAS would have to travel 800 miles through the desert just to get them to the Kufra oasis. 
to the south of the closest part of the Great Sand Sea. They would then have to travel another 800 miles, pierce the small gap in between the two great sections of the Sand Sea, head north for Jalo, and then split up from there to make for their respective targets. And they would just have to hope that their 220 men, 40 supply trucks, and 40 jeeps, each with four Vickers K guns, caravan, would not be spotted by the enemy, which is pretty much what happened. But the plan started unraveling long before they set out. Having this many people involved in the upcoming operation, chins wagged, loose lips threatened ships, people dished the dirt, beans were spilt. And David, spending his time in Alexandria, keeping up with the latest intelligence, started picking up on this. So he dutifully reported it. HQ told him he was being nervous. Not to worry, all would turn out well. And although the caravan was able to get to Benghazi undetected, or maybe it didn't, Sterling never made it to the city for his fourth try. Roadblocks were set up and ambushes were laid. Fortunately for Sterling, when he and his were set upon, the Italians were too nervous or excited and shot high, which allowed the SAS Vickers guns to open up and quiet those attackers long enough for them to make good their escape. Scrapping a mission was one thing. It happened. But as a guide, not of Sterling's choosing, led them through rocky terrain, they got lost. And it was only two hours before dawn when they were attacked, which meant they weren't far enough away when fighters were sent out to bring them to heel. And as the Axis knew they were coming, the aerial response was not one or two planes, but six German fighters. Still, David and most of the men and vehicles with him made it to their rendezvous point, an escarpment that led to a wadi. Here, they were safe. That is, until one of the new guys who got separated and drove back to the camp the next day with two German fighters on his tail. And not thinking, but just reacting to fear, the Greenhorn drove straight to the hideout, thinking only of his safety. But what he really did was show the enemy where they all were. Bombers were called in, and the men had to scramble and hide for 20 minutes while the majority of their transports were destroyed. When the all-clear signal was given, the survivors stared at the charred remains of their 25 supply trucks and 18 jeeps. Now each remaining truck would have to carry 20 men and each jeep 9 men. And of course, there wasn't enough food or fuel now to get back to Alexandria. The most they could hope for was to make it to Jalo and pray the Sudanese Defense Force had retaken the oasis. They didn't and were ordered to abandon their attack. But fortunately for David, the SAS made contact with them just before they left. Borrowing enough supplies from the Sudanese, David's part of the glorious raid on Rommel made it back to headquarters. Readying himself to face the music, he had to acknowledge that, although he did not make up the plans, he would be blamed anyhow. And his losses left no wiggle room for stretching the truth. He had lost one-fourth of his men and three-fourths of his transports. However, the Tobruk raid went even worse. But David was not the kind of man to enjoy the downfall of others, be they his rivals. 
The first few parts of Hazleton's complex plan went smoothly enough. His 80 men, dressed up as POWs, being escorted by the German-Palestine Jews, had worked well enough. They were allowed inside the defensive perimeter, drove to the shore, took the fort that housed the guns over the harbor, and silenced the radio station. All they had to do now was signal the seaborne commandos to come ashore by having lights flash down each side of the harbor. Yet, for the single reason of dysentery, one of the two signals was not flashed. This confused the would-be rescuers, but not the Germans, who eventually figured out something was amiss. Hundreds of Axis troops were sent out to scour the port city and the surrounding area. As the special forces did not come ashore, the fight was between 80 Commonwealth soldiers and an overwhelming enemy with lights and communications. Hazleton and many of those with him were killed. Most of the survivors were captured. Only six men managed to escape. Ironically, only the diversionary operation was an unqualified success. That's because that group, led by an SAS-trained LRDG man, went by David's tried-and-true methods and destroyed 30 planes. But Sterling was ready to take his lumps, realizing this may be the end of the SAS. So, how did the British authorities in the Middle East punish the leader of the SAS? They promoted him to lieutenant colonel. Then CNC Alexander let him know that the SAS was to be turned into a full regiment, which meant, from now on, the SAS was a permanent part of the army, and Sterling could now recruit enough men to fill out his new regiment which meant at least 1,000 men. And perhaps the headiness of all this good news threw David's instincts off, just as when the planners from the latest raid dangled so many carrots before him. Knowing that Montgomery, or Monty, was setting up his great and last offensive of North Africa, Sterling was keen that the SAS should do their part. And, as he had planned so many times before, He wanted to make life hell for Rommel behind the lines, as the British Eighth Army rained down hammer blows. But Monty was gathering up men quickly, hoping to jump off soon. So, if the SAS was going to help, David needed to recruit men who had desert experience. He needed to take men from the general's ranks. A face-to-face was needed, yet his approach left much to be desired. When David found the general in his headquarters, just 10 miles behind the Alamein line, he stated his need for experienced men bluntly, perhaps a little too bluntly. The general, sizing up the young man, said something along the lines of, You want to take at least 150 of my best trained troops? Do you think you can use them better than I can? To which David, to his credit, tried to couch his yes in terms of, If you give me the men, sir... I can start helping you in three weeks, sir. If I have to recruit and train them, I will need two months. And the 8th Army is due to jump off in about two weeks, sir. I fear I won't be as of much help to you, sir. But it didn't come out nearly as respectful as this, which Monty took as, I'm a better leader than you. You'll fail without me. And this, this is the last offensive of North Africa. Who are you kidding? But then, Sterling doubled down by smiling at his commanding officer, 
When Monte asked him why he was smiling, David thought, well, I've heard this from you, the guy before you, and the guy before him, and then said as much. I'm sure it will surprise no one when you hear that Sterling did not get the experienced men he requested, and the SAS and David in particular had added another enemy to their list on this side of the Alamein line. The battle between these two headstrong, confident men was just getting started. Later that day, when Sterling was talking to a subordinate of Monty's, he joked about saying the only way the 8th Army could beat the Axis so quickly without the SAS was only if the Americans were to land in North Africa soon and set up a second front. The reaction he got let him know that he had stumbled into the truth. Still, there was nothing for it. David would have to recruit from the infantry base depot, men fresh from the home island, or General Jumbo Wilson's Palestine-Iraq force. And while they might have actually had sand under their boots, they had little or no combat experience. No, for David it was back to training instructor, and so he put Patty Main in charge of his veterans and sent them out. If the conversation with the general had not gone so bad, Sterling planned on sharing his vision of what his men could do for the next few months. Namely, he was going to pick a section of the coast road behind enemy lines, about 80 to 100 miles long, break his men into teams, and have them hit their section two or three times a week. Communications would stop between Rommel's front line and his supply bases. The Germans and Italians would be forced to use the coast road only during the day to guarantee safety, which would allow the RAF a target-rich environment on a single road. The Axis front would dry up and could then be crushed. For now, the experienced SAS men would have to make do. Patty would take them to Kufra, set up a base, and then move north to set up a forward base about 150 miles south of Mirsa Matru. From there, they would hit what they could, which included, for the next nine weeks, rail lines. Meanwhile, Sterling would take his newbies to Cabrit and begin their training. Some of that included 30-mile walks in the desert at night with very little water. And during this time, Monty got on with his offensive. The slight general had an overwhelming numerical superiority and used it well. Rommel's forces were pushed back, aided by their lack of supplies and dodgy communication, thanks to the SAS. As some members of Patty's team got separated, they decided to give themselves up instead of, you know, dying in the desert. But when they came upon hundreds of Germans sitting around, their weapons at their side, the SAS found out to their relief, that these and many more Axis forces were surrendering so quickly no one had the time to disarm them. The 8th Army was on the move. It bothered David that he could not personally be there to help hit the Axis forces, but sending men out into the desert without training was the equivalent of murder. Still, the war in North Africa proceeded without the Phantom Major, regardless of his feelings. By mid-November 1942, it was clear to most that Rommel's days were numbered. The Americans had landed alongside their British cousins on November 8th in Operation Torch. Monty predicted that his troops would be just outside Tunisia 
by sometime in December. If that were really true, David believed, then this really was almost over. Time for the SAS to look outside North Africa and see where else they could wreak havoc. Perhaps it would soon be time to send Patty and some of the veterans to Lebanon or someplace to learn skiing. Then they could help in Turkey or other high-altitude places the Germans might threaten. But there was still Rommel to finish off. Despite Monty's protestations, the Desert Fox had surprised various British commanders before. So David proposed a massive plan to help finish off the Fox. Throughout November, the British kept pushing the Axis back, and with this in mind, David planned on two large SAS forces to go much further west than they had gone before. The remnants of the Axis forces were scurrying through Cyrenaica, but the Germans had built a solid line of defense at Aguila, where Rommel's entrance onto the desert stage had started so long ago. Sterling envisioned that the two SAS groups would be responsible for certain sections of the desert road and harass the enemy from Aguila all the way to Tripoli. If this could be done and Monty knocked down Rommel's defensive wall, then his retreat would be anything but orderly. The entire war machine could fall apart. But Patty did not have enough men to carry this out. So, David decided to take some of the men, who were coming along more than others, continue their training on the journey, and take the men himself on the 1,000-mile trek below the Great Sand Sea. But Colonel Shan Hackett, who was the coordinator between all of the various raiding forces of North Africa, strongly protested. There was too much work here to do. There were still men to be trained. There was still the post-African war to plan for. Who would do all this? But David replied easily, he was just going to take the men to meet up with Patty, and then he would come back. He promised. Besides, he needed to stretch his legs a bit. Office work had never agreed with him. He promised Hackett again not to go a raiding. Sterling and the 90 men, 12 lorries, and 30 jeeps set out in mid-November. <laughs> 